Last week we left off, I gave you some references, and they're in my notes, to talk about this subject, which we're going to continue on today, about these, the Nephilim, about these giants, about these uh, angels who had illegal ways, and they still do today. Remember we ended up about, about modern day interaction of demons and of, of evil angels, they still deal with us today. And they come in all forms of aliens. I mean, whatever anybody wants, as long as they can keep you away from Jesus, not you, us, you know, anybody, away from Jesus Christ, or even pull Christians through ignorance away from Jesus Christ with marvelous signs. They'll do that. I told you last, uh, last week, I've mentioned it many times in this class, that the Catholic Church is readying its people for alien encounters. I told you that there was a press release last year. Jose Fuenes, the chief astronomer, I know I repeat a lot of things in this class, but there are people who come and go here. And it's certainly people who come here who weren't in the beginning of the class to learn about these things. And so I keep repeating them. And I, I, I don't really apologize for it, but I know it can be a little boring for those of you who already know these things, but I want to keep building the context because you've got to keep everything you learn in context because these things keep reoccurring in Scripture, so we've got to keep talking about them. Anyway, the Catholic Church released a press release that they said it's okay to believe in aliens. And not only is it okay to believe in aliens, and by the way, this astronomer was directly appointed. He was in a direct appointee by the current pope. So you, know, you can find this online. You don't have to believe me. But anyway, they said not only do, are there aliens, it's okay because we'd limit God's creative power, but that they are most probably sinless. Now, if you were a demon, yeah, it says it in the press release. And so if you're a demon, if you're, uh, you know, however you're going to oppose yourself, oppose yourself when it's time for you to reveal yourself, you've already got a lot of people who are saying they are Christian, who are being led astray, led a captive, because they're in this organization called the Catholic Church, and the church, this church is getting itself ready for the onslaught. And I mentioned it to you last week, I'll mention it to you again, please keep your eyes open because it's coming, and it's coming real soon. I told you there's a couple of nations already who have had full disclosure. They're waiting for the United States to do it. Their quote-unquote top secret files are now online for all to see. And I've looked at some of them, and it's amazing. So, so that's what we talked about. But we're understanding this. Why? Because how does it apply to Scripture? We're at the point now in, in the book of Numbers where uh, Israel had sent, well, Moses sent 12 spies. Ten of them had a bad report. And uh, two of them came back and said, you know, we can take them. But remember what they brought back, large fruit. And they said that they were as grasshoppers in the sight of the people they saw in Canaan. So we want to talk more about that today. And so this, this uh, disobedience was so abhorrent to God. Because, you know, the bigger the target, right, the bigger the probability of your not being able to face down the enemy. And then God's command to take a larger enemy, sometimes the larger the punishment if you or I don't do that. You understand what I'm saying? It's very easy to have trust God in the small things. And as you grow in faith, it's easier to trust God. And, and you notice how he builds your faith incrementally? And then your giants, if you will, become larger. He doesn't start you out with a lot of large giants because you wouldn't make it. I, I go for it. It goes definitely for me, too. But if you get to the point where you're, you're ramping up, Rachel likes that term. She was asking, what do you mean by ramp up? You always ramp up, ramp down. She says, like, I'm always driving. You ramp up, ramp down. I'm think, I think of things in, on, a, on, a, on this. Say again? Like gearing up. Yeah, gearing up, ramping up is the same thing. That's right. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have an engine we got to install together. Want to change my clutch? <laughs> my husband talks in those euphemisms all the time. About, so you, you know. know. This is 
happens. Yeah, see? It. It's good. So we're, so we're gearing up, we're ramping up. But when God gears you up or ramps you up, if you get to the point where you or I refuse because we're just too scared to tackle the next giant, God is not going to let that lay. He's going he's to bring you around that mountain any number of times until you conquer that thing. It's almost like the 40-day wandering, except that for Israel, it's a distinct punishment. Nobody of that generation who disbelieved that they could do that one main thing, which was take those giants, made it to that promised land. When we talk about Moses and Aaron also not making it into the promised land at that time. We'll talk about that in a little while. Anyway, so let's talk about Goliath. Goliath was one of these Nephilim, or the sons of Anak. We're going to talk about that. But there are certain sets of people who have the DNA of these um, Raphaim, which are the offspring of the, the, or hybrids, if you will, that are human and also something else. And of this interaction of angels, evil angels and women that we talked about in Genesis 6, and that these people are the ones that the Israelites are up against now. Remember I mentioned to you, and this is the context, soon as Satan found out, because God said to Satan, to, I mean to, not to Satan, to Abraham, about the, 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 the near term, if you will, the nearer term history of these people, which he's promised Abraham, which didn't exist yet, Israel, right? And he says that they're going to come from your loins. So now, if you were Satan, you know who's going to be the genesis of this special people. And you know who the Messiah is going to come through. And then he further says a few other things detailing how this is going to roll out. And if you're Satan, you've got an ear out. And now you also know when he tells Abraham that they will be in bondage for 400 years, now you know you've got at least a 400-year head start. Because you also know which God promised Abraham that there's this land called Canaan which they will inherit. So you have the, prop, the possibility, should God allow it, but we know that God allows Satan to do a lot of things. And so, if he's allowed to, he's allowed to build a counter-strategy to plant minefields. And these minefields are going to be to destroy the human race. And I mean destroy it to get rid of it, but most importantly, to get it to the point of diluting it so much that they're not human anymore. Or that these subhumans or extra-humans, however you want to call it, will, will devour and destroy with the main intent of cutting the line off through which Messiah would come because Messiah had to be man. So if you can get rid of at least that part of it, you've won. We talked about hope and all those other things that he's working on. So he planted these landmines in Canaan and they were there and they had all this time to do this thing. I read you from the book of Enoch how this all started. So Goliath was one of these Nephilim or sons of Anak. He was about nine feet tall and you can, you can read that in Isaiah 17 and verse 4. Now listen to this. He wore a coat of armor. And again, why does Scripture tell you certain things? How much his suit of armor weighed? Does it tell you how much everybody else's suits of armor weighed? No. Does, we're going to talk about a man who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Why does Scripture tell us that? As you know, but I want you to understand, there is no idle fact in Scripture. None. The deeper you dig, the more you'll find out why it's there. He wore a coat that weighed 5,000 shekels, which converted to pounds is about 125 pounds. Now even, and I use you as my tall poster boy. Oh, Fred too. How tall are you, Fred? 6'4". Six four. There you are, 6'4". My two Nephilim. No, that's <laughs> Guard that door, man. <laughs> you guys are, are large. And especially in younger days, you were very strong. Some of you are still, still strong, but I'm talking about relatively speaking as like to a person of my stature, which is 5'5". Five five. But still, if someone asked you in combat, 
to wear a full armor or full combat body armor, if you will, that was 125 pounds, that's almost, that's what, ha almost half your body weight? So you got to realize that this guy had to be very big and very strong because he wore a suit of armor that was 125 pounds. His spear weighed 600 shekels. His spear was 15 pounds. Now, even if you were a javelin thrower, a 15-pound spear is not going to go very far with a regular human muscle, or, you know, regular human musculature. These guys could throw them far. This was in addition to the other armor and javelin that he was carrying. <laughs> and that's what it says in Scripture. Remember that when David confronted Goliath, he took this big man down with what? Yeah, a smooth stone from a slingshot. Do you see the ironic thing here? God loves to, you know, this mustard seed principle. That's what you and I have to be convinced of. And that's what he's showing us here. Where all of the armies, I mean, David was even told, you know, by Stahl, take my armor. And he tried to put it on. It was swimming in it. It was too big. Even he couldn't, little David couldn't even handle the normal size, normal weight armor that King Saul could use, right? So he says, I'm not using this. I can't fight in this. So he divested himself of all of the metal armor and put the whole armor of God on him, which to the naked eye looks like nothing, doesn't it? He had a slingshot and five smooth stones. And God directed one of those stones into the forehead of that giant. So he didn't even have to try to have hand-to-hand -hand combat. But remember also, David remembered one thing. What had God done in his life before that? He says, I have fought off a lion and a bear with my bare hands. So he's using his former understanding of how God worked in his life miraculously before. Don't you think that helped made him ready for this little guy compared to a lion and a bear which he had hand-to-hand -hand combat with. He didn't even have to have hand-to-hand -hand combat with Goliath. So these are the things that we learn from understanding these things about Scripture. Israel's problem was not that they were weak. They were faithless. And remember, what is the most important thing to God that we have? Faith. That's all. That's counted as righteousness. We know that God values faith above all else when it comes to honoring Him. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 18. I'm going to look more into this a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 18. You know, it's great. I don't have to speak so loud in here. Like, it's echoing back like I'm speaking loud enough. <clears throat> Am I talking softly enough for everybody today? <laughs> Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 18. Did you know that yet there is another Goliath in Scripture? Did you know that? There is. There's Goliath the Gittite who also is stated to have a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Now, in those days, a weaver's rod was like about 15 pounds. It's basically what he was talking about here. It wasn't a smooth shaft that you would think like a javelin to, to throw as either in a sport or to slay somebody. This was a large device. And he was a descendant of the Raphaim. 2 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 18. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time... Sibachai, the Hushatite, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. So get the context here. We're talking about battles of normal human Israelites against these Raphaim. And I just stated to you that the Raphaim are these large people, these large hybrids. We're going to talk more about that later on. I'm going to define these things for you, but just hang in there. Verse 19. In another battle with the Philistines of God, El-Hanan, son of Jari-Oregim, the Bethlehemite killed Goliath the Gittite who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. We just talked about this other Goliath. 
in verse 20. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man. A huge. Why would he say huge? You notice that he's huge because he's big. He's bigger than the normal human being. With six fingers on each hand. Does everybody have that in their Bible? Mm -hmm. All right. And six, and six toes. 24 in all. Now, again, I've got to make the point here. Do you think that this is stated for nothing? This guy just happened to be a, a deformed human being? No. Listen to this, because it says, he also descended from Rapha. So here's yet another qualification about these people who come from the Raphaim. They are not regular human beings. Verse 21. When this guy with the six fingers and the six toes and on, each, on each of the appendages, and, and he was a descendant of Rapha, this huge man, when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. Do you see a parallel here? When the original Goliath taunted Israel and the God of Israel, who took care of him? Was this man a huge man, the Goliath? Yes, he was. Well, now, here is yet another pretty close analogy to the same kind of thing. The context still applies. This guy was a giant, and this guy had six fingers on each hand and six, yes. Having six fingers, I learned in biology, is a uh, dominant trait. So I wonder if, because most people don't have six fingers, but if we were designed to, like, I think it's interesting that it's a dominant trait, which is probably something that was designed into that. Yeah, that's actually a good point. So it was designed by someone who altered DNA to design it in there. Have you heard of, ever heard of, um, I, I want to call it boutique life creation? Have you ever heard of things like that? They're doing it in England now. I, I think I mentioned this to you a while ago, it, along the lines of what Travis is talking about. It, you can design, like designer babies, things like that. It is legal. It is fully legal now in, in England, in Britain, to do genetic hybriding of humans and animals. It's legal. And you see how once they start doing this, it's not that we don't have the technology to do it. It's when we have the technology, all of a sudden it becomes a big moral battle. But who usually wins the moral battle? Not the Christians, not those who believe in God. We'll talk a little bit more about why hybrids? Why not just destroy you know, the human beings with a lightning bolt? Because there's a reason here. There's a reasoning behind it. So no doubt you've heard of the old American Indian custom of greeting each other with a raised hand. Ow. Do you know where that Hollywood? No, it's not. It's, it's documented not. in history. Uh, only, I just say that because I questioned somebody at a craft fair yesterday who was yeah. Canadian um, uh, Indian. Yeah. What they saying? telling me about the difference between northern and southern Indians and that they're, because they, because they weren't exposed to the outside as much, that their rituals and things are... You're talking about the northern? Yeah. Yeah. Canadian was what, he, what his tribe is called. It wasn't a name I was familiar with. So he was telling my husband and I about how all of, all of Americans have their knowledge of American Indian from the southern tribes because okay. they perform their ghost rituals and all that outside so that people could visually see them. Yeah. Whereas up here, because it's a secret whole, society, it was more inside. Yeah, yeah. That's so, interesting. And so I asked him, I said, what is your understanding of a greeting with a hand up? He said, that's Hollywood made. We don't go saying how or anything. They don't do it now. No. So, this, is, this is from ancient times. As a matter of fact, they weren't even really doing it. Hollywood took that and turned it into this Indian, before it became un-PC to talk about Indians. Now you have to say, you know, American, uh, Native American. You can't say black anymore. You can't say Negro. You have to say black. So it's all of this PC stuff, right? 
So they don't. They haven't done this in, in, in many, 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 I guess, centuries. But you know, when, but there was a time when they did, and it's do, it is documented in history. So this okay. person's right in the fact that Hollywood took what was fact and turned it into um, an icon of, of 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 Native American or Native Indian you culture. Tell me how they accept, how by giving a gift and it comes from the one hand that's closest to the heart. And you oh yeah. Accepted it. Yeah. Or, and they may have mutated in that, but you, you've probably heard, I've heard this in, in, the, in the annals of evolution, right? That when men were evolved and they started having brains and then they could, they could associate with each other, creating you know, rudimentary societies and then building into what we have today. The reason why there's a custom of shaking a hand when you greet somebody is because they said that it developed because you wanted to make sure and the other person wanted to make sure that you each didn't have a weapon. So you shook hands so that you could show that you were a weapon. Also, they said that men always had facial hair and the custom of shaving is so that you didn't grow a beard because then your enemy can pull you by the beard too easily. They can grab it. Sort of like a corrections officer wears a clip-on tie. So when the guy goes to grab it, you know, or like a, uh, a snake or, you know, or, a, or a starfish, they can grab the, the, the appendage and it breaks and it wiggles to get their attention off. Of course, it's baloney, but everybody's got an explanation. Okay, but, but so I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I've, I've seen this in, in more than one history, uh, more than one uh, historical documenting of this. So I'm just going to offer it to you as I've heard it. And of this course, is way back. this is way, way back. I mean, you know, we think of Indians with the feathers and stuff. This is when these people were, were still at the, at the primal beginnings of being what we know as Indian. I mean, you know, these people were, you know, the Bible focuses on the Middle East and it only focuses on people when they, as they come into contact with the nation of Israel. That's really all it focuses on. So we don't know all, because people spread all over the place, so we don't know the history. That's why you have to look at history to see how people migrated, what they did, and then look at history, and then you can understand mythology and all those things, and then tie it back so the Bible actually takes all of that and puts a big bow around it, right? It's not the opposite. People want to make it look like the opposite, that it has to prove the Bible. Well, actually, the Bible proves all of that, and it proves the Bible. So having said all of that, in history, it is said that they did this to assure each other that when they came upon each other that the person or uh, whoever they were approaching was a human being because these uh, hybrids had different features, including six fingers and probably other things, too, that were abnormal and you could tell right away. You wanted to make sure that you were coming upon a human being. Anyway, I'm going to read you numbers. Uh, I want to wrap up. We've got about, maybe a little about 15 minutes left. I want to make sure we wrap up numbers today. Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. And, and keep your finger there because we're going to read, I want to read quickly through this scripture, but this is going to talk about now, we're, we're back to where we were about, are they going to take this land or not? What's going to happen Why, that they've had this bad report? So the report comes back, the ten spies say, oh no, we can't do this. Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. They were really upset about this. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, Oh, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Oh, woe's me. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Now they're blaming God. They're going to God came, brought us out here just to kill us after God did all of this in their lives. Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is saying two things. They don't trust Moses and Aaron anymore. Moses really being the leader, right? And this is also setting up for when we get into the book of 1 Samuel. And I know I've read this to a, with a few of you. 
where Israel cries out for a king because they want to be like other nations. They want a physical leader to whom they can look at and say, yes, this man is our leader. They would not have God. And then they had the judges before they had the kings, and they were up and downs with the judges, but they wanted a leader. You can see the rudiments of this right here. They want to choose as a leader to bring them back to Egypt. Saying that this was a big mistake, God heard them and gave them their desires. Listen to this. Now we're going to continue in chapter, uh, verse 5 in chapter 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun. I see Joshua. Did he have parents? Son of Nun. Teasing. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. So, so there's this big division going on here. Those who believe they can take it and those who can't. There's a real, real problem here. The land we passed through and explored, and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them now. So you can see the, the, the two sides of the debate here. They're very heady here. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? It sounds like God is getting tired of this. How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. So I want to get past this point, but we, people talk about this a lot. Could Moses have changed God's mind? What do you think? Do you think God was going to... Give Moses the possibility of saying, sure, give it all to me, get rid of them, I'm tired of them too. Because that would have changed history and Messiah would never have been born. So don't ever, ever make the mistake that you can change God's mind or that anybody else can change God's mind. You never debate with God. You can try and he'll, he'll condescend to us and when something you pray for happens, it's because it was already planned to happen. And don't force anything that shouldn't be happening and, and I have a real problem with that I know a lot of us do because we want something so badly we really force it and if it's not God's plan it's not or at least maybe it's not yet that's the lesson I strongly get out of this and that's why I wanted to read it to you so let's move down to verse 17 now my now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you, de as you have declared the Lord is slow to anger abounding in love and forgiveness and rebellion Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And now listen to this in verse 20. You see what we've learned about the character of God in just these couple of verses here? The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Sounds like Moses changed his mind, didn't it? Do you think he really did? No. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert by, uh, but who dis disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No, not, no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and, follow, different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land. So, and that says, since the, since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the Red Sea. So that they started wandering. Remember what Jesus said. No one having put their hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Do you see the resemblance here of that remark, what Jesus said, and what God is saying about these people? Those people who tasted of my goodness, who saw the miracles with their own eyes, who saw and felt and ate of the provision that I gave them and knew that it came to them no other way, they're not going to see this land. So you see what Jesus said. He didn't change it, did he? That's the point. So you can read the rest of this scripture. I would suggest you read it down to verse 38. I'm not going to do that now. But the Israelites still did not want to heed God's warning <laughs> after all of that. And they continued to grumble. So I'm just going to read this to you. Just, you can go there. It's Numbers chapters 20 and verse 2 and just to 13. I'm just going to read some of it here. <laughs> now there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in, op- in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Uh, Numbers chapter 20 and verse 2. And we're, on, we're in verse 3 right now. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died and our brothers fell dead before the Lord. You see, they're doing it again. Because they have no water now. Yeah? What do we have? Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert? Now they're blaming Moses directly for bringing him into the desert. What, that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates and there is no water. Boo-hoo. See, they're doing it again. Isn't that a warning to us? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Keep complaining, Mike. <laughs> Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take this staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. And it says, Speak to the rock. There's something prophetic here. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. So far, Moses is obeying just as he has commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. (laughs) He's calling them what they are. Listen, you rebels. He's probably Moses. Can you imagine if you were Moses how upset you'd be? How, you know, maybe I should have said, God, sure, go ahead, make it be a great nation and get rid of these people. But see how vehemently he opposed what he thought was God's plan and said, no, you save them. You are a forgiving God. You are a loving God. As much as he loves these people, he's also really sick of them. Sounds like a family, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even look up. Okay. Verse 10, Numbers chapter 20, verse 10. So he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, uh, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock, not once, but twice. You see, anger, he's angry. Water gushed out, so God still provided out of Moses' disobedience and the community. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israel, of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I gave them. Okay, they will, and, and then and these waters were the waters of Mirabai and the rest of it. Now there's more grumbling, and I don't want to get into that right now, but they start wandering. I want to read you something here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Why chronicle this story of the cyclic grumbling, punishment, provision, grumbling? Why is this cycle being repeated? Why do we keep seeing this in Scripture? Other than a great history lesson, what does it really mean to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who completes in the games goes, to, goes in, uh, into strict training. 
They do it to get a crown that will not be lost, that will last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That they do it to get a crown that won't last. Therefore, I do not run like a man aimlessly. I do not fight like beating the air. No, I beat my body and, and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will be dis, uh, disqualified. I want to move you down to verse 6 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is, the, this is the summation of all of this. Now, all we're learning here, folks, everything we are learning in this class about Israel, about the ites and the its and these people and that people and the Rephaim and the Mithlim and all of this, now these things occurred as examples. Why? To keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. You see, they set their hearts on going back to Egypt. They set their hearts on provision. But that's the point. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, and it goes on. Don't be given into sexual immorality, as some of them did, and all of that stuff, okay? We have like two minutes. I know some people have to start going in a minute. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for whom? Us. On whom? The fulfillment of the ages has come. All of this is being fulfilled, and it's being fulfilled with us. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Okay. We talked about um, some interesting things. I, I'm not going to have time to finish today. I apologize. But uh, in verse 4, though. It, um, verse 4 of Corinthians 10. 10, yeah. Christ was that yes, that's right. That, that, that's a, that's a, that's I, when he struck the rock, Absolutely, and, and you actually get, you're absolutely right. What I'm going to talk about is, and I didn't read it, but you're absolutely right. That rock is a metaphor for Christ. And he was supposed to be tapped because the punishment for him was not out of God's anger. It was anger about the sin that was placed on him. But he was tapped because he would make it through. There are other reasons that we can talk about too. What I want to talk about now next week is I want to put something in your mind according to this. You know, it, it seems like it wasn't such a serious offense that Moses was so angry. I mean, God should understand, this man was fed up, right? So he banged the rock twice, and God still let the water come out. But he said to him, you're not now going to the promised land. Neither did Aaron. Huh? It seems harsh. It seems harsh. But listen, I just want to plant this in your mind, and then I'll let you go with this. Please dwell on this this week. We've been talking a lot about so far in this class the law. We haven't really gone into the prophets yet, but we talked about the law and the priesthood, right? Moses is the poster boy for what? The law. He had the privilege and the honor of giving the law to Israel. The Jews still look to him today as the law. Aaron started the Aaronic priesthood. What I want you to think about and come up with some reasons prayerfully this week, and we'll talk about it next week. Neither the poster boy for the law nor the poster boy for the priesthood made it into that promised land. Think about it. Only their descendants did. Think about it. The two poster boys never made it into that promised land. So we'll definitely be wrapping up numbers next week. And then we'll go right into, huh? Then we'll go right into Deuteronomy. But uh, anyway, have a great week and um, have at it. <laughs>